You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, let us pray. Hallelujah, all we have is Christ. Jesus truly is our only hope and stay. Father, now take these feeble human words and sanctify them by your spirit for the good of your people and the glory of your name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, tonight we are continuing our journey through Romans, and as you heard me say last time, in Romans you can't fall asleep for even a minute. Paul is making a tight argument through Romans. But we are following the lectionary, which unfortunately has skipped over much of chapter 9, the last chapter. Unfortunate because you can't really understand chapter 10 without chapter 9. In fact, Romans 9 through 11, these three chapters together form a kind of whole chunk of Paul's wrestling with something. You must read the chapters together. And if that is the case, if we are to read chapters 9, 10, and 11 together, then Paul is carrying us to a place of ecstasy. While in Romans 7, Paul was plunging us into the depths of hell with him, he wanted us to go to the low point. Now Paul is taking us, so to speak, to our destination. He is taking us to the gates of paradise. If we're keeping up with Paul's argument, we too should be awestruck at the utter gloriousness and graciousness of God. Romans 11:33-36 is our destination. Oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Note that line. Note that question. Who has given a gift to God that He could even be repaid? But we are perhaps now getting ahead of ourselves. Let me read Romans 10, 8-9, which we just heard, but let me read it again for the sermon. Verses 8 through 9. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you ever been hit with some sort of news or some event that just stops you dead in your tracks and either causes you to get angry or fearful or anxious? When I ask myself that question, um, the thing that immediately comes to mind is uh, from only a couple years ago when I finished my master's degree. I'd basically been in school my 
entire life, and then all of a sudden, school was done with, at least for the foreseeable future. And to make things worse, all of my roommates were going their separate ways. So there I was that December without school, without my apartment. All I had left, I was single, had no family really in town. All I had left was a part-time job that was keeping me together. I was faced with this feeling of crisis. Essentially, all of my daily rhythms were being removed from me. And while it may have not been clinical depression, I can only describe the feeling that I had as some sort of, some mixture of anxiety, depression, fear. And so now I ask all of you again, have you been hit with something that just totally undoes you? What is it that's supporting you and propping you up? What is that stabilizing force in your life that keeps you together? What's the glue that's holding you together? You know that phrase, such and such a person just came unglued? What is that for you? To press in just a little more, have, have you ever paused just long enough to let the weight of the world sit on you? Maybe you're driving in your car and your, your mind is beginning to turn over your personal issues. And then you go from your personal issues to things happening out in our world. I just learned of, before getting up here, of Charlottesville. I've not been checking Facebook or the news. Think of things like Charlottesville, racial issues, ISIS. Where then maybe you begin to circle back around and think of your health issues or your financial problems or your friend who was just recently diagnosed with cancer. Do you not feel your own powerlessness here? Do you not feel just how drastic our situation is? Life is absurd. Something is terribly wrong. And I raise all of these things to point out Is life not truly a vapor? Does not our own daily life and rhythms remind us that we are in fact losing the war? We are losing the war. We are entangled in death and we continuously run up against our limits. And yet, so much of our American way of life calls us to deny death. We are alienated from death. We are always trying to escape it and to conquer it. I heard recently in a sermon a quote from the Southern novelist Walker Percy that's worth repeating here about our American way of viewing death. He says this, Show me the Norman Rockwell picture of the American family at Thanksgiving dinner, and I'll show you the first faint outline of the death's head. Remember that word from Paul from Romans 7? If you weren't here, I encourage you to read it again through Romans 7 or to take a listen to the sermon recording from a few weeks ago. Remember, we are enslaved to the great Lord, Sin, capital S, and its partner, Death, capital D. Paul has told us, remember, that we are all in a prison from which we cannot escape. To pull from Romans 4.19, we are all like Abraham whose body was as good as dead. 
We are like his old wife, Sarah, whose body could not bear children. Death lingered over them and it lingers over us. We are like fallen France under Hitler's regime. We are prisoners who need a deliverer. The situation is drastic. Something is terribly wrong. Death is keeping watch. And under his looming threat, I ask you again, what is it that props you up? What's the glue that's holding you together? It's this very question. This very question that takes us right into Romans 10. If I can put it somewhat abstractly, the question here in Romans 10 is, what do the people of God stake their entire being on? What puts them in their proper place and gives them life? What justifies them, to use Paul's language? What sets them right with God and with one another? What holds the people of God together? Paul has one thing, just one thing he wants to deliver throughout his letter to the Romans. He wants to deliver the otherworldly gospel of God. And after unpacking just that, Paul now raises a question that we too ought to be asking if we have been following along with him. After unpacking this otherworldly gospel of God, now Paul wants to ask, what can undo the gospel? What can undo the gospel? And for that matter, what could undo the gospel's God? Here in Romans 9 through 11, he is dealing with that question from Romans 3 3, which says, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? What happens if God's people are unfaithful? Does death not then win? Does not that trump even God's promises? To explain the background for just a second, God has promised Israel that he would deliver them. Throughout the Old Testament, God has promised that he would rescue them. This is the promise to Abraham that he would bless Israel. So Paul must now ask the question. He must now point out the elephant in the room. If God has promised to rescue and to bless and to save Israel, and yet now they by and large, have rejected the word, of gospel, the word of the gospel, while the Gentiles are actually believing in this word, what gives? On the one hand, you have Israel who pursued God with the law and has failed in reaching Him. And on the other hand, you have the Gentiles who haven't even pursued God and yet they are now believing in Him. Israel over here has has pursued God, and yet they have missed the very thing that the law and the prophets bear witness to, Jesus Christ. For Christ is the end of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the telos of the law. And yet they have missed what was right in front of their face. What gives? Is God's promise to Israel in vain? This is exactly what Paul is wrestling with in these three chapters that we are looking at. And so Paul will say in verse 1, My heart's desire and prayer is that Israel would be saved. So what about Israel? Are the promises from God in vain? And does death triumph 
Does death trump even God Himself, the God according to the Gospel? Paul will begin to answer these specific questions in the next chapter, but first he has a piece of news for all of us, which is what we have just heard from in chapter 10. Now this may all sound a bit complicated, but remember, Paul simply has one thing that he wants to deliver. He wants to deliver the otherworldly gospel of God. So Romans 7 must not be forgotten. Who are we? Who are we in and of ourselves? We are prisoners who await deliverance. We are captives in a prison cell from which we cannot escape. We are immersed in sin, guilt, and death. And there is no hope left. But. But. But it is precisely where we have no hope in and of ourselves that we hear the word of salvation at last. As the German theologian Karl Barth says, the hope of the church is shown precisely where its guilt is proven. It is when we are plunged into the gate into the depths of hell that the gates of paradise swing open. It is precisely when we are dead that we can then be made alive. Precisely where the people of God cannot stand on their own two feet. Precisely when all the crutches are gone. Then our salvation is close at hand. Precisely when there is no longer anything holding us together. God is our Savior. When all seems lost, when there is no hope, when our body is like Abraham whose body is as good as dead, when our sin seems infinitely powerful, when death, capital D, seems to have the final word, it is then that we begin to hear the stirrings and the rumblings of some word outside of our prison cells. We hear talk of some strange news that we could have never anticipated or expected. At that moment precisely is when we hear the Gospel say, Nevertheless, nevertheless, says the Gospel, yes, your body is as good as dead, nevertheless, yes, all hope is lost, nevertheless, yes, you cannot bear children, Sarah, nevertheless, Yes, you cannot escape from your prison of death. Nevertheless, nevertheless, says Paul, let me tell, let me now tell you about the God who comes to you to rescue you even from death itself. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Here is an interesting piece of news from across the seas that we could have never anticipated. Paul is showing us here, us the POWs under death's reign, he is showing us now the God of the Gospel. The God according to the Gospel. The God who can undo even what undoes us. Or as he says in Romans 4 and verse 17, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. When all hope seems lost, when Sauron's armies 
have overrun every citadel and conquered every city of ours. When there is no hope left, the God of Israel says to us, Nevertheless, this is the Gospel. The God that the Gospel speaks of is one who is utterly and totally unique. He is not a tribal God who depends on us. He is not here only to support us. He is absolutely sovereign and free. He is the giver of all good gifts. He is the fountain of life. We are dependent on Him. He is not dependent on us. Says verse 12 of chapter 10, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. He is the one from whom all life comes and nothing can thwart this God. The theme that Paul emphasized earlier was the reign of sin. And now he is picking up on a different but related theme. He is now talking about the God who makes promises and the God who keeps his promises. He is picking up on chapter 4 where he describes the promise to Abraham as the promise that comes only by grace and through faith. The God of Israel, unlike our American God that we like to speak of, is a talking God. The God of Israel is one who comes to us and talks to us. He is the one who comes and gives life. He is not one that we must climb and find. He is the one who comes to us and rescues us. This God is the one who promises And he promises that he will reverse even death itself. This is what sustains us, us here and now as the people of God. It is God's word and his promise that sustains us. It is not any form of human works, no human initiative that we could put together. God calls us here in this very room. He calls us from death to life based on nothing that we could muster. No human possibility. Not even our best, brightest, and most religious works. The Gospel is God's possibility. It is not our human possibility. Many of you you have heard me say before that what the definition of the church is, what is the church? We are the community that gathers around the gospel. We are the community of people. We are the group of people that gather around God's word and promise to bring life out of death. God's promise rests sheerly on his grace through faith, not our works, nothing that we could do. What is the glue that holds us Christians together? It is the gospel. Is it some act of piety? Is it our faith? Is it our acts of service? No, it is the gospel. The gospel says that we are enslaved apart from God's doing. Nevertheless, God's promise stands. Life triumphs death. Mercy triumphs judgment. As Romans 9 says, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Do you see then why the promise 
is not based on any human works or anything that we could put together or assemble. It is based sheerly on what God has done by grace through faith. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It is not something that we can bring about. Justification is by faith alone. And just as a sidebar comment, this is one place where my friends who are most angry at Christianity, this is one thing that will really get them frustrated about Christianity. Sadly, much of how they think about faith is what they have heard in the church growing up. That it's some sort of feeling or leap in the dark. It's some sort of inner, private, personal, subjective something. Only if you check the box of faith, then you get the passport off to heaven. But my non-Christian friends here are right. They are right to protest when they hear of such a thing. When they think that faith is only if you believe, then you will be okay. But that's to trivialize what Paul is saying. The church needs to say that since what faith is, is faith not in ourselves. We are not trusting in our trusting. We are not believing. We are not looking inward. We get our eyes off ourselves and look to the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ, who was dead and who now lives. We trust in someone outside of ourselves. Which God do we believe in? The one who got Israel out of Egypt. Which God do we believe in? The one who raised Jesus from the dead. This is the God who makes promises and who brings life out of death. The church is a group that trusts only in Him. Faith in Jesus means that we cannot rush about trying to save ourselves, to try to rush off into heaven or to descend into the abyss to bring Christ to us. No, He is already here by His word of promise. The glue that holds us together is faith in Jesus, the One who was raised from the dead. This is what faith means in the Christian faith. And this is exactly what Paul is getting at here in Romans 9 and 10. Paul has erased all human qualifications. Nothing that we could do could justify us, could set us right, could keep us together. Not works, but Christ, the one in whom all things hold together. We, the people of God, are the children of the promise. God's decision to be for you is based sheerly on His mercy. Based sheerly on His pleasure to show mercy to whomever He wills. It is not based on any human value or anything that we could do. This is the way God has always acted. He is not served by humans' hands as if He needed something since He Himself gives life to all mankind. The God of the Gospel is the One who calls things into existence even when they do not exist. So can the last enemy, death itself, can it trump God? Can the great Lord triumph over the Gospel? Can our faithlessness undo His promises? 
No, not at all. Because the God of Israel is the one who is faithful even when we are faithless. Let God be true even if everyone is a liar. He is the one who brings life from death. He is the one who calls into existence the things that do not exist. You and I are entangled in death. But the God of Israel has raised His servant Jesus from the dead. And this is the Gospel. This is the good word. This is the news that we could not have anticipated. The church, we here together, we're not a historical society. We're not looking back to some religious guru to teach us how to better ourselves or to improve ourselves. No, we are the, we are the community that gathers around God's possibility and what He alone can do. Apart from Him, we have lost the war. And let me now, just in closing, speak plainly about how this affects us as a community. Is this all just a bunch of theology, theological talk, just a bunch of hot air with little practical import for our lives? We, the church of all people, ought to treat people hopefully. Because we are the community that gathers around the gospel, because we have heard the word of hope, the word of promise, because our hope is not in ourselves or in any human value, because we have not been put into this group here in the church based on our own human doing, but only because of Him, the God of Israel who promises, we are the society of all people. We are the society of hope. And so we can treat one another hopefully. Hopefully. And we can acknowledge, and we can be honest about the reality and the horror of death. And so when one of us gets that dreaded diagnosis, we can look one another in the eye, in the face, and acknowledge death, and yet be hopeful. This is what makes us the church a community of revolutionaries of protests in our day. When we gather, we are a subversive public gathering protesting against this present evil age because we have heard the word of the gospel, God's promise, the God who brings life out of death, the God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. We have heard His word and promise and it is that which sustains us. What is the glue that holds us together? It is not our works. It is only Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not merely a man on our side of existence. He is the Word by whom all things were created. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Word whom, who created all things. He is the Lion of the tribe of, the, of Judah. He is the fountain from which all life springs. He is our rescuer. He is our deliverer. He is the Lord of the living and the dead, and of His kingdom there will be no end. Can death undo us? No. Not even death can undo us, because God has raised Jesus from the dead, and He is now the Lord. When all other hopes fail, 
God's promise stands firm. Jesus Christ is our only hope, and He is hope enough. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.